You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nick, can you believe that we're at work right now? Yes, because it is where we work. But I mean, our job is to learn stuff and then tell other people what we've learned. Yeah, I see what you're getting at. We got a bit of a dream job here. We got a bit of a dream job. Also, the hours are reasonable. True. We aren't locked into the building. Also true. The air is breathable. Yeah. Nobody physically threatens us. Hold on. Not that I'm not grateful and all, but can I just say, of course... We're not Lowell Mill girls in 1900. We're public radio hosts in 2019. That's a good point. But, you know, we didn't get here by accident. People had to ask for better conditions, demand better conditions. Our jobs look the way they do because of hundreds of years of protests, strikes, rallies, negotiations, and legislation. So it all started back in the 20th century. Actually, we got to go back even further than that. Way back. The story of work in the United States begins before we were the United States. And my work in the United States, by the way, is co-hosting Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And I'm Nick Capodice. And to understand the way that work works in this country. It helps to understand where we came from. In order to get to ergonomic office chairs and lunch breaks and safety measures and a living wage, we had to pass through grueling hours, child labor, factory fires, and feudal strikes. Through unpaid labor, servitude, and abuse. Through the enslavement of millions of people in the name of capitalism. Well, the vast majority of working people in the colonies were bound laborers in some way. This is Priscilla Marolo. She's a history professor at Sarah Lawrence and co-author of From the Folks Who Brought You the Weekend. They might be apprentices who were legally bound to work for their master craftsmen. They might be indentured servants who were bound for a period of years, or they might be enslaved but they were bound in some way. Wage work, as we know it, selling your labor and having the right to quit an intolerable job was quite rare. When Priscilla says bound laborers, she's talking about people who cannot quit. Some were obligated to work for, say, a master craftsman for a period of time. So that would be an apprentice working in exchange for learning a craft. Others were indentured servants working to pay off a debt like Passage to America. Those were, almost without exception, white people. And then there were those who were obligated to work because they were enslaved and owned by another person. Those were, almost without exception, people of color. Work was a very different thing for most people in colonial America than it is today. The settlers of that colony preferred indentured labor to enslaved labor because it was more expensive 
to buy an enslaved worker than it was to buy an indentured worker, someone enslaved only for a short period of time. And chances were that the laborer was only going to live a few years anyway, because the work was very hard and the swamps carried a lot of fever. But it wasn't just hard, risky work that went into being an indentured servant. These positions were oppressive and bound by contract. Indentured servants were forbidden to quit. They needed permission from their master to get married. They were sometimes beaten. But if they lived long enough, they would eventually work off that debt. Right. And their work conditions, I imagine, were nowhere near as bad as enslaved people. Right. That's a good point. We're going to be talking about a perception of some common experience here. But enslaved people were bound for life. They were often shackled, whipped, mutilated, sexually assaulted, and sometimes murdered. In many states, they were forbidden from being educated. And in all cases, actively deprived of personal identity and a sense of humanity. Indentured servants, by contrast, did live under harsh and restricted conditions, but they had some rights. The commonality here is being bossed under oppressive conditions of some kind. People resist being bossed in all kinds of ways, sometimes just passively and sometimes through confrontation, but they have historically resisted it. And this is the heart, in many respects, of the labor movement, that and the notion of solidarity. Solidarity, standing together against a common enemy. Even though indentured servants were by no means in the same camp as enslaved people, both groups lived under the thumb of the ruling class. Especially after a big rebellion in Virginia in 1676, a hundred years before the American Revolution, a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion. This was a big uprising of indentured servants and slaves together. This Bacon guy, he considered all indigenous peoples to be the enemy of the colonists. He wanted to attack both friendly and defensive tribes, and the governor of Virginia was just not having it. So Bacon rallied support. He promised freedom to all servants and enslaved people who would join his cause. Indentured servants united with enslaved people in a common cause— all sharing the bond of bound servitude. And this was alarming for the elites. The fathers of Virginia, the ruling fathers of Virginia, thought, well, we have to find a way to divide these two groups. And one of the things that they did was to get more generous in the conditions of bound laborers to begin to segregate in the law. So the people in charge see the possibility of a unified oppressed class and they're like, no way, gotta nip this in the bud, right? Right. They crafted this stark division between races by providing indentured servants and non-land-owning white males with more rights and power. And they passed laws that made relationships between those indentured servants and enslaved people untenable. For example, if you ran away from slavery or you ran away from an indentured, you would be punished under the law. But if you ran away together, a slave and an indentured servant together, they would be punished more severely. 
So now you've got this perception of enslaved people at the bottom of the work ladder and indentured servants a rung above. And Virginian lawmakers also start to lean into language around African descent. In 1622, they codified the idea that slavery is hereditary and lifelong, and that basically anyone of color brought into the country as a servant should be considered a slave. So now just, just the shade of your skin can mean that you're going to be enslaved or associated with slavery. Right. And on top of that, they've given white people some rights and power regardless of their status. And that intensifies this us versus them dichotomy. And the white us stretches across the economic classes. For example, by the mid-1800s, you no longer need to own property to vote. The political parties are still run by elites, but those elites now want to woo working whites. They want those votes. They want that support to say, we have something in common because we are white. I may be a plantation owner, and you may be scratching along as a shoemaker, but we're both white, so we have something in common. We'll come back to Priscilla in a moment, but I want to introduce another person here. I am Philip Nicholson. I'm Professor Emeritus, retired from Nassau Community College after 46 years, Uh, I guess you could call me Phil. (laughs) I mean, you can introduce me as the author of a book, I guess, that you came across that seemed to be uh, provocative enough for you to invite me to talk to you about the issues that you're going to bring forward today. That book is Labor's Story in the United States. And Phil starts that story in the same place Priscilla does, with slavery. Slave labor, that is, labor without any rights whatsoever, no human rights, no civil, legal rights, no liberties, that is, rights under the law, uh, whatsoever. And that was the preferred and dominant system. And uh, when the revolutionary era unleashed calls for liberty, give me liberty or give me death, it awakened the rest of the population, including women and some slaves and the formation of anti-slavery societies start in that period of the revolutionary era and the concept of liberty itself, that is the attainment of rights under the law. This idea of liberty catches on in a way that perhaps the elites, the orchestrators of the Revolutionary War, had not intended. Employees and enslaved people see the possibility of control over their own lives and their own destiny. And that includes control over their work experience. In addition to growing abolitionist sentiment, there was growing unrest among workers. When they first sought to organize, if they, if you could call it that, they didn't even call them unions then. Unions. Unions. Kind of. A union, more specifically a labor union or a trade union, is an organization of workers dedicated to protecting themselves and others in their same field, whether it's about wages or hours or working conditions. Most collect dues to keep their activities up, and they negotiate with employers, they lobby Congress. But the first people who tried to do something like this got into big trouble. They were found guilty of engaging in a conspiracy to raise their wages. The they Phil is talking about is the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers of Philadelphia. 
They were shoemakers employed by master craftsmen, and they worked crazy hours to meet the footwear demands of the states. But they didn't make very much money, so they organized into this society and demanded more pay. Or, as a judge saw it, they committed conspiracy. That's actually from the original 1806 indictment, a conspiracy, an illegal conspiracy to raise wages. And they lost that case, and they began in various towns and cities to fight through their local, state, or city courts and legislative bodies to win the right to associate with one another. And they were not successful for the first 25 or 30 years in winning those battles. The problem wasn't just that they got low pay. It was that the court was essentially saying it's illegal to organize and ask for more from your employers. But that didn't stop all kinds of workers from trying. Here's Priscilla again. The first political parties to raise that issue appeared in the late 1820s. They were known as the working men's parties. They're mostly in the Northeast. And they had a, a much more expansive vision of us and them. You know, they thought of themselves as speaking for working men and women, usually white working men and women, but not necessarily only white working men and women. And and they thought of the other as their enemies, as the, the rich, the elite. The working class pitting itself against the elite. It's something that we've come close to before, which is why legislators passed those racist laws that pretty much cemented the fate of people of color in the United States and kept organizing across working groups at bay. But this sense of commonality between poor, working whites and wealthy elites started to shift with the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. We went from smaller-scale operations and a lot of agriculture work to factories everywhere. And with them came terrible working conditions, grueling hours, and workplace injury. There was considerable support for the abolition of slavery among mill workers in New England. And it's not too hard to explain because they worked under terrible condition in cotton mills, right? Processing cotton that was cultivated under terrible conditions by slaves. And they often identified with those other workers in the production process and formed anti-slavery associations that would be based in a factory or based in a union such as the Knights of St. Crispin, which represented shoe workers. There was anti-slavery sentiment among workers, but it's important to note that some of that sentiment came from self-interest rather than empathy. The whole country was propped up on two codependent industries. You had planting and manufacturing, cotton and mills. In the North, industrial capitalists exploited their workforce, and in the South, plantation owners exploited theirs. And while having a common enemy does not mean that white Americans saw enslaved or free people of color as being equal to them, same goes with men and women, across these groups it was at least agreed that the expansion of slavery needed to be curbed. So there were protests and strikes against the industry. But after slavery is finally struck down... You've got this massive population of freed people who need to work, and they live in a part of the country that has been hostile to the very idea that they should be anything other than property. Does this sentiment of fair wages and better working conditions suddenly extend to these newly freed people? Certainly workers 
hoped there would be, prayed there would be, demanded changes. Organized workers right after the Civil War said, now we have defeated slavery. Now we have defeated the most anti-labor reactionary system we could imagine. And we now hope to use this as a basis for remaking the whole society, extend freedom to everyone and maximize everyone's freedom. But that is not what came to pass, as we know. What did come to pass is that Southern legislators severely limited all kinds of freedom for freed people, including freedoms having to do with labor. After Reconstruction in the state of Mississippi, it was a criminal offense. You could go to prison for breaking a labor contract. And you were expected to sign up for a labor contract which should run for an entire year. So you would wind up a sharecropper working for the same family that had owned you when you were enslaved. And you, under the state law, you had to sign up to work for a year. And if you left, if you thought, well, again, I can do better by, um, I'm going to move from Mississippi to Chicago. That was illegal. It was also a crime to not have a job. Many freed people ended up as tenant farmers or sharecroppers and accrued debt that lasted through generations, which meant they were something akin to indentured servants, to the families that had once owned them. So this is a real catch-22, right? You're not allowed to quit your job, to go look for another job, but you can't also not have a job. Right. Did those farmers ever attempt to unionize? Yes, the Alabama Sharecroppers Union came around in 1931. It was open to all races, but membership was solely African-American. They staged huge strikes against landowners for fair wages and more rights. And they succeeded sometimes, but there were also violent clashes and more failures than successes. So what I'm hearing is that more failures than successes is kind of the theme of the labor movement so far. But I look at my job today, and I know over time things improve because of that movement. So how do we get to this point? The biggest strikes, the biggest struggles in what is called after the Civil War, a kind of heroic age of labor, as one of their the heroes, a woman who I came to admire, Mary Harris, Mother Jones, uh, once said, those were the years of the martyrs and the saints the decades after the Civil War when the biggest battles, and there were national strikes and walkouts and even almost a national general strike in the upheavals of 1877, when workers in huge, very impersonal, very dangerous uh, industries, mining, coal, uh, minerals, uh, hard rock mining out west in the Rocky Mountains, and of course in steel, Uh, in various ways engaged in some of the biggest labor battles in all of American history. So it's just labor unions kicking butt all across the USA? Well, they never quite kick butt. Or if they do, it's through a thousand tiny, largely ineffectual kicks. Because they often do not get what they want. But the noise that unions make, that does make a difference as the decades wear on. Meetings and protests turn violent. People are killed in the name of better conditions. Buildings are burned, machinery is destroyed. And strikes were massively disruptive to industry. 
So legislators start to listen. Yeah, we're actually going to speed ahead in time now because this is when things really start to pick up. Working conditions spark social movements like the child labor movement and the black freedom movement. After the Great Depression, under President Roosevelt's New Deal America, the Fair Labor Standards Act was signed in 1938. This puts an end to oppressive child labor standards. It brings us the minimum wage and overtime pay and the 40-hour work week. And the weekend. The hallowed weekend. In 1964, we get anti-discrimination laws and a right to equal pay. In 1970, we get a right to health and safety in the workplace. And it's a constant battle of worker versus industry, with social and labor movements working in tandem to have their needs and wants met. Workers just don't shut up, and it makes a difference. But what exactly did we get out of all of those decades of strife? What did all of the changes in the American workplace actually provide to the American worker? That's coming up after the break. From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell Which side are you on? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner and I'm a miner's son And I'll stick with the union till every battle's won you like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome back to Civics 101. Let's get to work. Work in the U.S. has come to be defined by the victories of the labor movement. And for the record, that history is rich and varied and complicated, and we have had to skip over most of it to get to today. But you should know that most unions in the country today are under either the AFL-CIO, that's the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the Change to Win Federation. Now, what does work in America look like today? Yeah, sure. So my name is Camille Abair. I'm a professor of law at The Ohio State University, uh, Moritz College of Law. Camille teaches labor, employment, discrimination, and employee benefits law. I asked her to run me through the ins and outs of protections, rights, and limits in the world of employment. And it turns out that the federal government has established a lot of rules and regulations for the workforce. So let's say I don't even have a job yet. Am I protected even during like the interview process for a job? So yes, the federal prohibition against discrimination, which is generally race, sex, religion, national origin, age, disability, apply both at the being employed stage and applying. Anti-discrimination is in a lot of state laws as well, but it was the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that served as the hallmark. It's unlawful to refuse to hire someone because of a particularly protected category. 
Um, it would also be unlawful to, <laughs> to engage in sexual harassment at a job interview. And I, I kind of laugh thinking, well, that wouldn't happen. But I've actually read cases where it did, where there was actually harassment. Yeah, a major theme of my conversation with Camille was my being disappointed that this stuff still happens in the workplace or anywhere for that matter. But that's why we have these laws, and that's why I'm telling you about them. So let's say you have a disability. What does that mean for you in the job interview process? Particularly for disability, um, you have to show that you are a qualified individual with disability, which essentially means you can perform the job, the essential functions of the job, either without any help or with accommodation, with reasonable accommodation. All right, so what happens if I suspect that I wasn't hired because of discrimination of the employer? Do I sue? You can try. And if you do prove it, if you're right, if you win? Courts will um, often order employers to hire. So you have to prove generally intent to discriminate on the part of the employer. Sometimes with the disability law, it's a little easier sometimes to prove that because employers generally can't ask about disabilities, uh, at least non-obvious disabilities, um, until after they've made an offer. Now, let's say you got the job. It's an office gig. You're going to be in charge of answering the phone, and you're talking wages with your new boss. And your boss says, look, I'm going to pay you $4.50 an hour. Capiche? I mean, you, you have to be paid at least the minimum wage. And so if an employer says, no, I'll only hire you if you work below the minimum wage, and you say, no, I won't do it, then you can sue. Right? You can sue for a violation. It's the Fair Labor Standards Act is what does the minimum wage. So the minimum wage in America is seven twenty-five right now, right? Yeah. And some states can go higher, but no states can go lower than that. Exactly. I also know that even though we have that law, uh, if I'm a waiter or a bartender, I will not get that minimum. So there's a couple of exceptions. Tipped employees can get a smaller minimum wage. It's like $2.14, something really low, as long as their tips make up the difference between that and the minimum wage. All right, so someone gets hired in this cushy phone answering job. What happens if you start the job and then they hire this guy, Bob, to answer phones with you, but Bob is getting paid more than you? Is that somehow illegal? Right, so there is a federal statute that prohibits men and we paying men and women different wages for the same job. It's called the Equal Pay Act. Um, 1963 it was enacted. Um, but it requires you literally to show that it is the same job. Not worth the same, but the same job. Let's say that it's a woman who's hired for this phone answering job, and Bob gets hired, and Bob happens to be a man. If Bob is getting paid more than me and we are working the exact same job, like same hours, same amount of responsibility, same effort, same output, then that woman might have a case. She would have that case under the Equal Pay Act. Right. And the Equal Pay Act only applies to sex. So if you're going to sue for race or any other category, you have to do it under Title VII or the Age Act. Title VII of what? That'd be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So if you're a person of color being paid less for the same job as a white coworker, you can sue according to discrimination on the basis of race. The Age Act of 1975 works in a similar way. So what about other workplace protections? 
I'm thinking about these places that have terrible conditions, terrible bosses throughout history. Now, I know wages were behind a lot of strikes and a lot of organizing, but the workplace was too, right? Oh, yeah, big time. So harassment is covered on the same grounds as any other discrimination. So sex, religion, race, national origin, uh, disability, age. Most people hear about sexual harassment, and that's what they think of. And they think of it as, as something sexual, which, of course, sexual harassment does generally require sexual conduct. But harassment can also just be creating a hostile environment. Things like yelling at your employees, denigrating someone in the workplace, making fun of someone for their religious beliefs. Harassment violates a lot of laws. It's covered in the Civil Rights Act, the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. There is a catch, though. Harassment has to be either severe or pervasive or both. So I have to be like either super duper harassed or harassed for months or years? What if someone's just making me feel bad? Well, that's unlikely to be enough for a case. Also, harassment doesn't often have an audience, right? So how do you prove that you're being harassed? Emails are good, but what if you don't have them? Yeah, if you don't have proof, it's, um, you know, one person's word against the other. I actually really hate when I hear, you know, he said, she said, because it just really bothers me, sort of that notion, um, you know, that if you don't have outside proof somehow, your own word that it happened isn't sufficient, right? Um, I mean, it can be. It's just really hard. Uh, courts are, I think, reluctant to find employers liable if it's only the woman's word about what happened. It's not always a woman. It can be a, a man also. I know that's the way law goes in America. You're innocent until proven guilty and the burden of proof is on the victim. But it seems almost impossible to prove you've been discriminated against or harassed. Yeah, I hear you. And sometimes these cases involve that power imbalance or fear of losing your means of income, fear of being fired in retaliation for speaking up. And speaking of being fired, you know, many employees are considered something called at will. And that means that they can quit for any reason. But it also means that their employer can pretty much fire them for any reason or no reason. Employers can read anything you wrote on a work computer. They can monitor what websites you're accessing on your phone if you're using workplace Wi-Fi. They can listen in to any call on a work phone until it gets obviously personal. They can even ask you about that sick day you took last Friday. All right, so labor unions and social movements pushed and they pushed and they pushed for rights and protections, but it's not like they stripped employers of total control. Right. Employers still have plenty of power and protection. But I think the important thing is that these laws do deter employers from discriminating against or harassing employees. And they give us stuff. Health insurance. What I'm thinking of is the Affordable Care Act. Um, you have to be, certain employers have to provide health insurance to full-time employees, and those are employees who work more than 30 hours a week. Overtime. I think the biggest misconception is that salaried employees are not eligible for overtime. It's actually the opposite. To be exempt from overtime, you have to be salaried uh, for the most part. Child labor laws. So the Fair Labor Standards Act has minimum wage overtime and child labor provisions. So they're for children under the age of 18 or 16, depending on the occupation, um, there are limits on how many hours you can work. 
usually it's, you know, outside of school and, you know, certain only certain number of hours during the, you know, school year. We also have to have our disabilities reasonably accommodated and our employers have to protect our health, safety and welfare when we're at work. If we're fired and it wasn't our fault, we get unemployment pay. When you look at the whole trajectory of work, it's kind of remarkable that we got here, (laughs) that it looks this way at all, right? In large part because workers fought for the right to even just come together. They demanded it. And then they kept pushing. And things are still changing. There are state laws that take a lot of these federal laws and run with them. Some states mandate paid family and paid sick leave, and some raise their minimum wage. And some ban employers from asking you what your former wage was in order to break a cycle of unfairly low salaries, especially for women and people of color. My favorite part of the story of work in America is that workers found a way to improve this system that they found themselves in and make it work for them. We do have a right to try and make things better. One thing about workers' rights you didn't mention. Oh, what? It is illegal for an employer to ask an employee about their marital status. Same goes for whether you have kids or you're planning to have kids. Oh, that's actually, that's a good rule. Where'd you hear it? I've been doing a lot of reading on marriage, divorce, relationships in general. And there's a lot more there, like a whole episode, a lot. That's next time on Civics 101. Civics 101 is produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Ben Henry, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Erica Janik as our executive producer. Maureen McMurray pours herself a cup of ambition each and every morning. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, Lobo Loco, the Almanac Singers, South London Hi-Fi, Daniel Birch, and Geographer. There is lots more to see and learn at our website, civics101podcast.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our newsletter. It's where we put all the tangents and fascinating tidbits that couldn't make it in our episodes. And it's awesome, if I do say so myself. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.